Hello there, listeners. It's Susie New from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and thank you for listening to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk about all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. This episode is for people who have trained in anesthesia outside of Australia and are thinking about coming to Australia to re-qualify. I'm chatting with Dr. Amritha, who trained in Kerala in India and is now a specialist anesthetist in Australia. You'll hear us use the term SIMG, which stands for Specialist International Medical Graduate. We talk about how she navigated the process of becoming a specialist here in Australia and also getting medical registration. In this chat, I couldn't help but compare and contrast some of her experiences with some of mine working in parts of Asia and the Pacific. So this episode might be a good one if you've got an interest in global health or learning about health systems or medical education in other countries. The Australian Society of Anesthetists has been supporting the development of anesthesia and critical care in the region for over 30 years. If you'd like to find out more, then head over to the global health section of our website. In this episode, Amritha and I mention a whole stack of educational resources. So at the end, I'm going to take some time to go through them in a little bit more detail. For now, let's get into it. First of all, thank you for giving up some time this morning to meet with me. No, no, no. I'm really honoured that you chose me. Oh, I love celebrating people's successes. I think it's wonderful. And we'll find out more about what your journey has been. And the other thing I wanted to say was congratulations for passing your exams. Thank you. And so does that mean you can start working as a specialist anaesthetist? Yes, it does. Great. From the moment you passed your exams? Yes, I didn't have anything else to complete. And I've got my fellowship. I got my fellowship very quickly, like within a month. And I'm hoping to start as a consultant like in the the next month or so. Oh, fantastic. So this is a really exciting time. It is. Oh, lovely. Oh, all the best during this time. But let's go back. Where did you originally train? I'm from India. So I trained in India as an anesthetist and I worked there for about 18 months as a consultant. Actually, as soon as I finished my training, I came to Australia with my husband and then I took a five years break to have my kids and then I waited until my kids were school age before starting to work. And then I went back to India and worked as a consultant for 18 months. And while I was processing, doing the paperwork for this SIMG pathway. So I came back after that and I started working here. So you finished your training in India mm-hmm. and then you came to Australia for five years. Yes. And then in order to practice again, you had to go back to India. Yes, that is right. And did your family stay in Australia during that time? My husband stayed back. I went back with my kids. So there was a break in the family life, yes. And so Uh, for 18 months, you're having this long-distance relationship relationship, with your husband. Yes, that's hard. I feel like very guilty about that with my husband. It's not just me, it's with the kids as well. Like he's losing kids' time with them. So yeah. yeah. I've done a lot of work in Fiji and in Cambodia and that situation of having to live either away from your children or away from your spouse, it's so common and we have it so rarely in Australia. I think we really take for granted how we can combine work and family. It's not always easy. At least we're not often having to juggle these really long distance relationships, but it seems to be so common in the rest of the world. Yes, it is. And it's totally accepted. I don't think you would be given a special preference because you have a long distance relationship. That's taken as almost normal. Like, okay, yeah, just deal with it kind of attitude. And it's really hard. I didn't realize that until I went there and then that was hard. Yeah, yeah. 
That's hard. Let's go back to your training. Whereabouts did you do your anesthesia training? I am from Kerala, South India. So I did uh-huh. my training there in Kerala. Kerala. What's it like there? It's, let me say, it, it looks like Fiji. <laughs> it is almost like Fiji, but more crowded. Right. So quite tropical. <laughs> yeah, it is very tropical and it's a lovely place. It's yeah. a state almost similar, uh, probably half the size of New South Wales, a coastal state, but with a very high density of population. A quite, I guess, in, according to Indian standards, we did have very good, it's still good, but not as good as it used to be. Healthcare system, which works really well in public and private as well. So oh, even the public system is really good. Right. And then does all the training occur in the public system? All the training occurs in the public system. And then were you based in the capital city or did you move around? No. If you do your training anywhere in India, you would stay in the same hospital for the whole period of your training. That's how it is. You would go out for your cardiothoracic term to a different hospital. Other than that, you would stay. Most of the hospitals would have all the other specialty lists. So unlike you have a training here in Australia where you go around and you have your rural term, most of the trainees don't have to go anywhere. I was fortunate enough, I had a cardiothoracic department in the hospital that I trained, so I didn't have to go. So you get exposed to all the similar things we would do, like regional anesthesia, cardiac. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pediatric. Obstetrics is everywhere. That's global. I would say so too. Yeah, we do have big cities and big hospitals. So training, I think, is quite comparable. It's not like you have one hospital every 200 kilometers or so. No, actually, there are hospitals everywhere. It's very crowded. Kerala has a very high density of population and healthcare system is quite good as well. We do get exposed to advanced techniques and access to specialist things. And so I think if you train somewhere in South India, I would think that, okay, that person is fairly competent in most of the techniques of the modern anesthetic world. I see. So how many years is the training program? So in India, the training program is three years. So you uh-huh. get an MD degree at the end of your training. Oh, okay. So is it a university-based training program? Um, it is. You get awarded the degree by the university. But other than yep. that, I don't think the university has anything. Things have changed since then. Now we have, at least in Kerala, we have a common university, which oversees all the medical and the paramedical health courses. Again, many countries I've been in, Fiji, Asia, across the Pacific, have a university-based specialty training program. The college system is very, I think, uniquely British. Yes, yes, I think so. Like we do have a society just like ASA, we have an IES, Indian society, but I don't think they contribute much to training. It's mainly after you've qualified, they provide resources and support. Yeah, the post-vocational training. Across all of India, would the training program be three years or does it vary from state to state? That is changing. You have ideally two degrees, like one is a diploma and the other one is the MD, a master, doctor of medicine. So diploma would be two years. But essentially in India, you would finish your training in three years. But as opposed to here, instead of being a five-day week or or with some weekends, it's 24-7. Yeah. <laughs> You're there, you go home and the work is done, which is whenever that work is done. Before anesthesia training, so before you went into your MD, how long was the undergraduate degree? That was for four and a half years and then a year of internship. Okay. So five and a half years. So I guess that's similar to what you have in Australia. Yeah. yeah. And in Australia, a lot of places are moving to postgraduate medical Mm -hmm. degrees now. So is it still undergraduate entry in India? Yes. In Kerala at least? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Uh you went from high school into a five and a half year medical degree, did a year of internship. Yep. And then between internship and then 
enrolling for the MD, mm-hmm. do you do clinical time or can you go straight into the you MD? You can. Even with undergraduate MBBS training as well as the postgraduate training, it is based on competitive examination. It's an MCQ exam. Training for that is quite competitive. So mm. you really have to give at least a year of study. So based on how mm. competent you are, there are people, very intelligent people who get it in the first go. And then there are people who take a few years. So you work in between that time. Uh-huh. So while you're working, you're studying for this onerous MCQ to hopefully get into a specialty training position or into your MD. Okay, gotcha. The hospital that you trained in, mm-hmm. what was that like? It is, again, a public hospital, as all public hospitals. It was a busy hospital. I'm not sure how many beds it had, but it had all the specialities, like general surgery, obstetrics, pediatrics. Pediatric surgery was a very good, very strong specialty there. Again, all the other one, neuro. And I think our cardiothoracic department was one of the most prominent ones in the state. And then very similar to how you do it here like by the end of your training like the last year of your training you are expected to perform most things independently there is always shortage of staff Mm -hmm. shortage of everything except work the workload was quite heavy but it it does give you a lot of exposure to most of the stuff and then you are doing a lot of things independently as well so yeah how many operating theaters in your hospital so i think we had 12 operating theaters with Mm -hmm. and another Three, which was the emergency one. So there's always wow. one for a CSIS, emergency ONG one. Yes. Uh, yes. And then there are two for other emergency theatres and then wow. 12 other ones. Did you do trauma as well? Yes. Trauma is a very important, you can imagine. It's quite common. And in fact, I don't do neuro here, but then most of my neuro experience would be trauma, traumatic yeah. brain injury. Yeah. And it sounds like it was busy, so you would have a number of theatres running overnight, and usually it's the trainees. Yes, it is. It is always the trainees. So how many theatres would you run overnight? Just three, including the urgencies at theatre, so three wow. theatres. Three. That's pretty busy. If you're yes. able to run three theatres overnight, that's a busy centre. And during your three years of training, did you have to sit exams? Yes, at the end. And unlike the training system here, you just have one exam at the end. Again, it's very similar. You have a theory paper and then you have a clinical viva. And then you've had that competitive MCQ, which is a generic MCQ to get into the training program at the start. Yep, yep. I can see bits of the system that are very similar, Mm -hmm. as I said, ones from other countries. One thing when I was in China, there were such big hospitals there. They had 5,000, 7,000 bed hospitals. Mm -hmm. They would often have a different building for different units. So they'd have the cardiac building and it would have its own operating theatres and its own ICU, the neuro building or the trauma, the surgical buildings. Mm-hmm. What was your hospital like in terms of the layout like that? We definitely did not have separate buildings like that, but I have seen hospitals, like there were hospitals in my state and outside my state as well. When I started working as a consultant in a private hospital, they did have a cardiothoracic or the cardiac ward or the department had a separate building with the cardiac and the cardiothoracic. So because mm. most of the things would be complementary to each other, they found it better to be isolated in a building in terms of infection control and stuff like that. They found it easier to manage it as a separate building. So I have had that, but not in my hospital. The only thing we had was, as I said, the obstetric and the gynecology theatre was a different set of theatres, but not a building, but in a different floor. 
and probably closer to labour ward. Yes, that's right. Yep. Did you have one ICU that all the patients would go into or did you have separate ICUs for the different subspecialty areas? No, we just had one ICU. Intensive care is something which might be a bit backward. In some hospitals, I wouldn't say the hospital that I trained had a great ICU. I think it was three-bedded ICU that we had. Wow, three beds for 13 theatres. That just doesn't seem enough. That doesn't seem enough. Most of the other specialities did have some high-dependency units, Mm. so where you could just send non-intubated patients for overnight monitoring, but not without anesthetic input. Like None of the anesthetic department would help there. There'll be just a nursing staff. But in terms of intensive care, I think we just had three beds. Things are changing. The hospital that I worked later on as a consultant did have, I don't know how many beds, but it was huge. Yeah. And which was like very similar to the ICUs here, a closed ICU, which is managed by intensivists. Yeah, right. So ICU where you trained was an open ICU. So you would manage your own patients or was it a closed unit? That was managed by the anesthetic department. So it was ah, a closed ICU. Okay. I don't think even now there is in India, there is a different college or a different specialty called intensive care. It's mostly anesthetic consultants who manage that. And I'm not sure how things are now. And one thing I've also noticed in other countries is that emergency medicine isn't its own specialty. That's true. That it's often anaesthetists that go down and do the intubations to care for the patients in the emergency department and bring them up to theatre if necessary. Is that? Yes. Yes. That was the case when I was doing my training. I would do my rotations as an intern. It would be like you would be in the ICR, you would be in the ED, you would have specific days. And then on that day, the trainee or the Sarama would be the person managing the medical side or the surgical side of the ED. But again, things have changed. That is one thing which has definitely changed. Emergency medicine is now a speciality. Before ICU, interesting. Yes, before ICU, yes. And there are, I think they have started training and they do have MD. Yes. So it's a speciality now. So that has changed. Wow, great. As I said, I've been in a few countries where the emergence of ICU as its own specialty and emergency medicine as its own specialty, splitting off from anesthesia, I've seen that evolve. I think it shows the impact of anesthetists and how broad ranging our <laughs> yeah. skills and our training, if you've Definitely. trained back in that time before they, emergency medicine and ICU became their own specialty, how broad ranging your skills and your training experience have been. So you finished your training, then your husband lands a job in Australia. Yep. And you came out here. And Mm -hmm. during that time, you're raising your children, your twins, no less. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which would be a huge amount of work. (laughs) (laughs) So hats off to you for that. Were you working at all? And were you doing anything medical? Were you missing medicine? To be honest, no. (laughs) That's great. Honestly, I love it. That that was mainly a personal choice. Like I I didn't want to work while I had small children because I have seen enough of my colleagues juggling and struggling with kids and work while I was training, while I was working back there. That was a personal choice of mine that I would not work. And I'm glad that I could do that. So I did not do anything. Like I was totally non-medical person during that time, except the fact that once in a while you might pull out something and then read some medical thing. Other than that, no. So coming forwards again, so mm-hmm. you've been in Australia for five years. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then you decide to go back into clinical medicine. Your children are old enough. And w- what happened there in terms of going back to India and restarting? Was it like transitioning from being a full-time stay-at-home parent to back into clinical work and moving countries? Like that's a lot of change going yeah, on. Yeah, that was a lot of change. I was fortunate that I could get a placement in my hometown so that I had my family to support me with help with kids so that I could concentrate on getting back, updating, upskilling myself. It took me a while, like a few months, two, two to three months until you are, you're comfortable enough, you gain confidence back because five years is a long time. Mm. Some things which used to be muscle memory has mm. slipped out. So you really have to actively bring it back. It took a while, but again, as I said, immense family support. Things would have been difficult if I had trouble organizing childcare. So mm, in definitely. this case, I could just go to work because yes. they were very well managed by my by their grandmother, so my mm. mother, so that, mm. which was excellent. And mm. in fact, they preferred that as well. So Grandparent time, that's good. Did you have much support in the workplace as well? Did you ease back into it or did you undertake an extra refresher course in order to get some confidence in your skills? In India, we don't have options for refresher courses. But as I said, I was fortunate enough, I went back to my hometown. So people who worked there have seen me as a medical student, work as an intern and then doing my training. So most of them knew me, which was easier. And then I did some shadow lists as well. If I think I was not sure, especially things like neuro and pediatric surgery where you don't want to be alone so I've definitely asked people to stay back be with me like just say just be in the coffee room I'll give you a call if I need you like a Russian if you get a call sounds like a supportive department yeah definitely I cannot thank enough and I'm really fortunate in that I've always had very supportive departments wherever I've worked so that's really great great that's important I'm with you I like a supportive department (laughs) definitely yes did you go straight back into full-time work there's no option of part-time like that. When you said no option, I thought that was the case. There's so many countries, there is no option for part-time work. There, there is no option of part-time work. So you go, that's it. Exactly. And then there's no working hours. You go at eight o'clock and then you come back when it's done, which is yep. whenever it's done. And with after hours in India, most of the places, I think it'll be 24 hours on call, which is going to be 24 hours work. It is very unusual to be free. It's, it's all night operating. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And then you get a day off the next day, which is good. So that used to be, I think, at least once a week and then weekends at least once a month. So it's full on. It's a, like, a lot of on-call, yeah. yeah. And that was in a private hospital as that, well? Yes, that was in a private hospital. Wow. So you're almost like an employee of the private hospital. It's very different to private medicine here in India. Yes. I think it is different in that aspect. In India, we do have... Lots of private hospitals, especially in the state that I had. And I think most of the states will have. And they are quite full-fledged in terms of forces and what they can do. There was a lot of trauma. And I think, I'm not sure, but again, I believe the private sector here would not catered much to trauma patients. Not no. The work load as such, I think, in public and private would be very similar. If you work in a public teaching hospital, the good thing is you have trainees with you. So there's somebody to share your workload. Otherwise, with private, you don't have that. You just soldier along. Hopefully the remuneration is better in private to make up for that. Yes, it is. And so you're working in India and you've been there for 18 months. And at what point did you think that you wanted to come back to Australia and re-qualify in Australia as an anaesthetist? 
actually that was partly part of the plan like we had two options one we thought we'd relocate back to india yeah. so this was i go first and my husband would follow me or i could come back and then i think after 6 months or so we decided no it, it is better that we come back to australia rather than my husband coming back is his job quite transferable as well he is a doctor as well oh, okay as transferable as you yes, yes. <laughs> so that's when i started the process of applying to the college was your husband just out of interest was he also going through the similar process of requalifying or had he already done that he has or? already done that he did that 5 years ago when we came so we had that one year when he was going through the same process of, as an SIMG so you kind of knew what was ahead of you yes definitely yeah. yes i think i was fortunate in that way that this was not totally a new system like before i started working i was living in australia i knew something about the health system it's not like you're walking into the hospital the first day no like i kind of knew how things worked here because you were getting those insights from your husband yeah that makes i think such a big difference it, it does it does yeah Yeah, and that's something I hope that through the ASA groups that we can help people who don't have that ability to have someone that they can get that information from. So did you have to do the AMC exams? I did not have to. I think if you applied through the SIMG pathway, the International Medical Graduate pathway, you didn't have to, but I, I did that just because I thought okay, I should should have a backup plan in case my specialist pathway did ah. not work out. I did the part 1 which is the MCQ when I decided that was long back in 2014. when i started yes. this and then i went on to do the part 2 as well yes. later on much later on like a couple of years ago yes. in between my exams yes. and it did take a lot of stress out of me as well when i got a general registration you have something yes. to fall back on thing that's always a solid plan b lovely like, i didn't realize so amc exams give you general registration Yes. If you just go through the SIMG pathway of the college that only gives you specialist registration. Yes, it does. And you can do both of those pathways at the same time. Yes, you could. You don't have to do AMC first and then get the college. Yes, yeah, you don't have to. I didn't realize. Yeah. So you started the whole process in 2014. Yep. Did you say? Yep, 2015 probably. Like, yeah, I wrote the AMC in 2014 before I left, and then 2015 was when I did my interview with the college and Anesthesia College, and I was deemed as partially comparable in the SIMG pathway. And then I started working in 2016, like six months. The next rotation. Yes, and so when you said you set your AMC mm-hmm. before you left, you set mm-hmm. that whilst you were still in India. No, I did it here. I was here. I believe we do have options. to do that out of australia that, yeah, you know yeah. the, uh, definitely yeah. in many major cities of india not in my state but we have i think four or five centers in india i'm not sure of any other country like that there, there should be there's definitely one middle east in dubai wow but i did mine here in australia so just looking at the amc process first so mm-hmm. you set your first exam which is an mcq yes And then what's the second exam? The second exam is a clinical exam, an OSCE. You have two ways of doing it. One is an OSCE, which is I think you have a center in Melbourne, but I did the workplace aspect of that, which is there in some health services. Again, fortunately, the area that I worked did have that. So I did that. You just needed one year job 
in this health service to be qualified apart from other things like but the main qualification is you need to have a job current job to be enrolled in that pathway so i did that and that means you don't have to sit that clinical exam no so it, it, it's okay. essentially like doing an exam over a period of 6 months or 4 months which does take away the stress yeah definitely and it means you can work and earn some money and things like that what sort of work do you do like what what are the workplace based assessments do they do they define what types of rotations or what sorts of jobs you should be doing yeah essentially i think it is the same exam but just split over different months i had to do exams in all the six i think it is six general medicine surgery obstetrics pediatrics ed and psychiatry so in all those six subjects yes i may have missed but yes. definitely these subjects so at least two assessments so basically a uh, clinical case taking discussion and case based discussions in all these subjects so you have to do that and did you have to be working in those areas no you did not have to do that again this is an option which i chose to i was working in anesthesia i've always worked only in anesthesia i was working as an anesthetic registrar while i did this this is essentially an exam this doesn't give you general registration once you do this you get a certificate saying you have passed AMC part 2 but that uh-huh. doesn't equate into a general registration oh, okay. to get a general registration you need to do rotations in whatever they tell you i chose not to do that and i chose to get a general registration limited to anesthesia ah okay which okay. enabled me to work in anesthesia in a non specialist position yes so i could always be a trainee in an or a registrar in anesthetic again as i said as this was my backup plan so if exam did not happen if i couldn't make i was thinking okay i'll keep on working as a cmo in anesthetics or do some locum as an anesthetic registrar yes and you can go back to those rotations and then broaden it yeah you can always go back yeah. i think that's a very good to know because when you have progressed so much in your life in your career it's difficult to go back and work as an sramo absolutely when you know and love anesthesia and then to have to go back and work on a general ward and do general med and general this and that it's difficult like even when you're doing the exams it was like i think i had things like okay the history taking in obstetrics i was talking to them about spinal anesthetic and they're yes. like why are you doing this <laughs> yeah, exactly. this is what i do exactly this is my obstetric history <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's what you focused on all your career. Oh. Yeah, understandable. Also, oh, that's good. So, you, when you made the decision to requalify in Australia, you went straight into an anesthetic registrar job. You sat your AMC part 1 and part 2, mm-hmm. and you got general registration limited to anesthesia as your that's backup right. plan whilst undertaking requalification. So, I wanted to ask about that. So, what was involved with that process? I think you said at the start that you first of all went and had an interview with the college is that Yes. So you would first thing that you would do is to apply to the college and then once they assess you they would assess your paperwork they would call you for an interview and then you go into the interview where it is basically they're just checking it, it's not a knowledge interview. Uh, I went in thinking oh they would be quizzing me about anesthetics but no they are essentially trying to find out what you did how much you did and where you stand in terms of your training so they just essentially this just explaining your CV because we don't understand exactly what training programs are like in other countries yeah definitely yes and then from anyone who's applying from wherever they're applying from it'll be different because everyone's training is a little bit different so what i would say is if somebody's planning they would try and explain what they did most of the people 
people would have done wonderful stuff back in the country where they come from. So just try to explain that because they really don't know what uh, sitting in a room and then trying to read through a CV. So yes. once you're deemed as partially comparable, again, you have to have a job. So you need to find a job. That's not college's responsibility. There are a couple of requirements, more a couple more requirements. Like one is obviously the exam. To, you need to pass the exam and then... The part two exam. The part two exam, just yes. the part two exam. And you need to do CPD according to the ANSCA and the medical board standards. And uh-huh. also, I think there are a couple of courses like the EMAC courses that you need yes. to do. I see. Okay. Did they decide also that you had to do a certain amount of clinical time? Yes. So for me, it was two years. So two years full-time supervised clinical rotation. So being on a registrar roster effectively. Yep. I've heard people who have got one year, 12 months, but it yes. mostly most of the people whom I've seen and spoken to have 24 months time. Okay, so there was that. And then you knew that you had to prepare for the final exam and then doing the courses. Do you, you mentioned EMAC. Do you have similar courses in India, these uh, it is coming up. It was not there while I did yeah. my training. I believe it should be there now. I have not gone back and checked these yes. days. But as I was planning to come back, I did the basic course, which is an intensive care. Yeah, I teach basic, yes. So yeah. they did have that. It really depends on like where you are and then you may yeah. have to travel. I believe it should be coming up more. Yeah. And I think that's something we take for granted in Australia is simulation training. Yes, definitely. Yes, simulation training. Mm. Then coming into the final exam for anesthesia, what was that like going going into that exam? <laughs> Terrifying. One thing is like your mindset is that when you finish your training, at least for me, when I'd finished my training, I had closed that student chapter in my life and then suddenly to find yourself back, like you keep thinking, am I in a dream? Am I dreaming? No, you're not. It took me a long while to accept yes. that, okay, no, I am doing this again. So there was that not so much liking it. I can imagine, yeah. And it was a very different type of exam for me as compared to how I did my exam in India. Uh In India, and I think it is like that in most of the places in India, most people are interviewed or you're examined by a board of examiners, like four people at once, rather than one single examiner doing you multiple Ah, times. Interesting, yes. And uh, two of them, like at least in my case, at that time, in most parts of India, it was two two people would be from your teaching hospital. Ah, okay. So you have the advantage of having two people in the examination board who knows you. And then uh, that helped me a lot. And not having that advantage here, it scared yes. me, to be honest, scared yes, me a lot. Yes. And it's a different process, like the talking bit. I found the talking bit very difficult. The Viver exams? When you spend most of your life being told to be quiet or even you're expected (laughs) to be a silent person and work and then suddenly within two years of time you're expected to talk and think out loud what you're thinking It, it is very difficult I found that transition very difficult I can imagine. So what resources did you find useful to help you get through the second part? So in terms of content, I found ANSCA resources were more than enough for me. Like in terms of looking for the content, that is something which I found difficult. The textbooks that you follow, like Oxford textbook is not something which is commonly used in India. We do Uh have it, but then we had, I think, Morgan's Clinical Anesthesiology was was our Bible. So that's... So knowing which textbooks to go to is useful. Yeah. Yeah. So all the BGA education articles and the anesthesia tutorial of the week in terms of content. One of the other things that I found very useful towards the end was the local health service guidelines on anything. 
whether it was drawing up a magnesium sulfate infusion, drawing up amiodarone, or knowing what is your acute stroke pathway, your blood pressure targets. That is a very easily accessible resource and that was very useful for me. And in terms of exam prep, having access to your local trainee group is very useful. I was fortunate enough in that I had a tertiary hospital within 30 kilometers and I could access the group and they were very inclusive and friendly. Were you working in that hospital? I was not. I was not. Yeah, but no, I think isolation is a really big barrier for a lot of people going through the SIMG pathway. Definitely. Yes, yes, yes. I think being geographically isolated is a bad thing. COVID mm. has given us the options of Zoom. But mm. again, I was fortunate enough to be not so geographically isolated. That was a good thing. Then again, ASA now has great resources. Rita and her crew has uh, huh. doing a great job with the practice virus and with SIMG she does run special sessions on SIMG which I think is really great because I have felt that and I've learned that in the hardware that it's not of use that you find it very difficult to speak publicly so you shy away when you are asked questions but if you have an SIMG group we don't feel that shy or that's what do you call it? apprehensive like you yeah you can sort of it's, it's more you feel more at home in such a group so she does run sessions which is great she's amazing i've been to those sessions and i'm amazed she makes everybody turn their camera on and they all have to answer these viva questions in front of each other i would be terrified of that so i think everyone's so brave for showing up and doing it and then you get to know a cohort also. You get yes. to know somebody who is in the same boat as you. Like local trainees are great. They are helpful. Obviously, on an average, they would be younger people. They're not worn down by all the other issues, like, you know, yes. life issues. So yes. it's difficult for us to connect. Yes. There's a different background. You're often yeah. at different stages in your life. Life, yeah. Yeah. And you just haven't had that experience of some of the expectations. I just recently did a podcast about failing exams. And I, I was speaking to someone who didn't pass their exams when they moved countries and we were talking about the different standard and they said that when they went for one of their, their final exams, I think it would have been the equivalent of the AMC part two, mm-hmm. they approached the patient from the left-hand side because where they trained in their country, it didn't matter if you approached the patient from the left or the right-hand side, whereas in that exam for that particular country, it was an instant fail. You always approach the patient from the right-hand side. So just knowing things like that. Like that. Yes, definitely. Yes. When you grow up in a system for a person who, who comes into that system much later, it, it's difficult to know. And it takes a while, depending on the person. For me, it always took me some time to get used to the system. Are you working now? I'm in Newcastle. What are your next steps? I'll get a job for a year. So I'm here. And then now I've got a job as a consultant here. It doesn't change anything. I'm just moving on. More pay and more responsibility usually. (laughs) But it sounds great. It sounds like you're ready for it in so many ways. Yeah, yeah, great. Lovely. Look, I wish you all the best in your career. Thank you. Thank you for also sharing your experiences with me. I get a lot of inquiries from people wondering what it's like to move countries and still do the job that you love to do. Yeah, I can imagine, yes. Is there anything else that you would like to say? I know there are a lot of hurdles through this journey, but then just hang on to it, get started, seek help. There are a lot of people who are ready to help. There is always that inhibition because you have progressed so much in your life, in your career as a consultant. You think, oh, how can I go back and ask that? What would they think if I asked them this, which is such a basic question in many things. But then 
please it's difficult but then just cast away that thing and then ask i don't know this how do i do this i think with an sng consultant the main thing is all of us would know anesthesia but then it's just knowing the system so please seek help there is a lot of help and then um just hang on it is a psychological roller coaster going through this process but it is totally worth at the end and then you will get there it is difficult but not unachievable task i believe lovely so hang on have hope yes and just keep asking for help along the way see yeah, help good all right lovely and thank you once again for your time this morning oh thank you thank you for considering me i'm glad no. to be of help Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed celebrating Amritha's success as much as I did. What an impressive person. She mentioned a few things during our conversation that I wanted to unpack to hopefully make this podcast even more useful for you. The first was that concept of the anesthesia muscle memory that we all have. Perhaps you've worked with the same surgeon for most of your career or you provide an anesthetic for a niche type of surgery so often that you could almost do it blindfolded. If you'd like to share your pearls of wisdom, then let me know. I welcome any of your contributions to our anesthesia recipe book. If you'd like to access some of these tips, then look up the recipe book. It's available for ASA members on the ASA website, or you can get a glimpse of it on the ASA YouTube channel. If you, like Amritha, have taken a break from work and are looking for a refresher, then I can recommend the crash course. It's a short course. It covers advanced life support, difficult airway skills. There's some high fidelity simulations. You cover anesthetic emergencies, obstetric, pediatric emergencies, and it's all done in a supportive environment. If you're an ASA member, then you might be eligible for a scholarship to assist with the course fees for that. I chat more about the crash course in episode 26 of this podcast, so feel free to go back and listen to that for some more information. That's episode 26. While I'm talking about previous episodes, during this conversation with Amritha, I referred to a podcast I did with Professor David Storey on his experience of not passing the primary exam. If you feel that that's relevant for you, then go back and have a listen to it. It's episode number 64. That's 64 of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast. As Amritha mentions, there are plenty of exam resources on the ASA website, such as videos of previous practice fibers. These can be found on the ASA education page and as Amritha mentioned, we hold practice viva sessions that are only for people who are specialist international medical graduates because we do understand that your needs are a little bit different. If you want to participate in those, head over to the events page on the ASA website to register. You do need to be a member and of course, I'll put a link to all of the resources that I've mentioned in the show notes, so just scroll down and click on the link. Finally, the March edition of Australian Anaesthetist is based around the theme of education. In there, you'll be able to read more about requalifying as a specialist international medical graduate, as well as more about the educational offerings from the ASA. There'll be some perspectives on medical education in Australia and in the digital world. It should be in your mailboxes by now, or you can find it on the ASA website. All right, I hope you enjoyed getting to know a bit more about Amritha's journey and I also hope I've mentioned a useful resource for you that you might want to look up or even contribute to. Until the next episode, I hope you're staying safe and well out there and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Australian Anesthesia Podcast, which can be found on all the major podcast hosting platforms as well as YouTube. This podcast is produced by the Australian Society of Anaesthetists and hosted by Dr. Susie New with music created by Dr. Mark Seuss. 
The ASA was formed in 1934, and our vision is for every anaesthetist in Australia to be at their best, providing the highest quality anesthesia and perioperative care through excellent technical and non-technical skills. We also hope that this means that you are functioning at your best when you're away from work. In this podcast, we have conversations that seek to inform, challenge, and inspire you to keep you performing at your best. Members of the ASA can access full versions of all episodes by logging into the ASA website at asa.org.au. If you are listening on your favorite podcast app, then make sure you look at the episode notes for the direct link to the podcast on the ASA website. Also, feel free to follow or subscribe so that you can receive the latest episodes as we do publish regularly. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to email us on podcast at asa.org.au. Thank you for your time and we hope you enjoyed listening.